Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, my guest is Philip Henson. He's a board member of Americans for Fair Taxation who advocates for the fair tax. What would you say if you never had to file federal income taxes ever again? Not like Wesley Snipes tried, but with an alternative tax system which eliminates the IRS, eliminates all federal income taxes on individuals and corporations while still funding all the federal government programs and ensuring the poorest among us pay no federal taxes. Then please stick around for the entire episode today as we talk to Phil Henson about the fair tax. Phil has been advocating for the fair tax, which is a federal consumption tax, since the 1990s. He explains how the fair tax can be easily implemented, how it would totally eliminate the IRS and all income taxes, which I think we can all agree would be awesome, and how it will free up American businesses to be more competitive in the world market, which he claims will add jobs to the economy and raise the standard of living for us all. The fair tax is a fascinating proposal, and I think it's important to talk about alternatives to our current tax system, which is complicated, extremely invasive, and costs hundreds of billions of dollars to comply with, which drags down the GDP by up to 3% per year. Phil explains how the fair tax isn't aligned within a political party, and according to Phil, the fair tax is revenue neutral, meaning there's no change to federal spending, and it has a monthly rebate to ensure those who are at the poverty line or under pay zero in federal taxes. I personally would like to live in a voluntary society where no force is used to fund the government. But until then, I'm open to learning more about the fair tax. And I hope you are as well. I exercise my health freedom by taking Kratom to help ease my chronic pain and with improving my overall well-being. I recommend everyone do their own research on Kratom to see if it's the right choice for them. If you choose to take Kratom, the only Kratom I trust is from naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics, spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X, dot com. Use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 to get 20% off your next order. If you'd like to hear more about my experience with Kratom, email me, brad at chronicallyhuman.co. Please support the show by subscribing, by leaving five-star reviews if you enjoy our content, and by sharing episodes with friends and family. Thanks for listening today, and let us know your thoughts about the current tax system and if you think the fair tax is truly fairer. Thank you, Phil, for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We wanted to have you on the show because a big day is coming around the corner, and it's not Easter I'm talking about. I'm talking about (laughs) April 15th, Tax Day, which affects everybody in such a profound way that a lot of times we take for granted that the income tax is the only way to fund the government. And I, th- I like what you guys are doing. You're, you're um, aligned with the Fair Tax Organization. Is that correct? Yes, I am on the board of directors of Americans for Fair Taxation. Excellent. And the fair tax is something that's totally different from our current income tax. And I think people don't really appreciate how the income tax radically changed America that it really empowered the government to, to basically steal property from individuals at will. Now, how, how do you guys explain that the fair tax will help to um, put the balance of power back into the hands of individuals? Well, uh, as you mentioned, the income tax is as much about control as it is about uh, revenue generation. In fact, I could give you a couple of little stories that are interesting 
that some of our uh, elected officials uh, told under duress, I guess you could say, uh, they don't normally uh, speak candidly about what the re resistance is to uh, getting rid of the income tax. But if you uh, are privy to some of the private conversations that they have behind closed doors, uh, which we have been over the years, from time to time, uh, you know what the real reason is. And the real reason is simply because they use the uh, the income tax to hand out tax favors and um, preferences and give preferential treatment to this group or that in exchange for campaign donations. So it's a, it's a very sordid and a very uh, corrupt um, mechanism for raising the, the federal government's revenues. That is right. There, there's a huge part of it that is corruption. There's a huge industry but both around the income tax with all the, the tax preparers. And it's really insane if you think about it that you need to have somebody help you fill out your taxes. You know, paying the government for goods and services, you know, should be something easy and painless. And it shouldn't require an army of accountants to tell you what you, how much you're going to pay because people really don't know, in fact, how much they pay in taxes each year. Well, that's right, because so much of our tax burden is uh, hidden, or we call it embedded, in the uh, cost of the products that we produce. You know, a producer in the United States only has one way to recoup his costs of uh, production, all of his cost of production, including the embedded uh, payroll and, and the corporate income taxes uh, and the employer's portion of uh, uh, Social Security taxes, and that's through the pricing mechanism for her, his his or her products, and so um, we don't realize how much our uh, pricing is inflated by these hidden taxes and the uh, incidence of uh, burden, as the economists refer to it, always falls on the consumer, even though it, the, the uh, consumer is not paying a, a check directly to the federal government. That's a good point about embedded taxes, and that's part of what the fair tax is all about. Can you explain the basic tenets of the fair tax and how it does compare with what we're currently under? Well, sure. I use five uh, descriptors to explain what the fair tax is. It's a uh, broad-based, <clears throat> progressive, revenue-neutral, um, consumption tax. And I'm leaving out a couple of them. <laughs> I'm having a senior moment. That's but okay. it's uh, it's progressive and it's it's broad-based, and it's uh, a consumption tax, and it's also revenue-neutral, meaning that it brings in the same amount of revenues that the uh, current system brings in. So one of the concerns that you will get from legislators is, oh, we need all the revenue we've got. We've got a huge deficit as it is. We don't want to expand that, and the, the fair tax uh, doesn't get involved in that whole controversy over what's the, the correct level of government spending and what's the correct level of taxation. It just says we have a simpler, more efficient way of uh, raising the revenues. And the spare tax is a consumption tax paid at the point of purchase or sale uh, of a end-using good or service. And um, American consumers would pay the tax at the cash register once they leave the cash register with their uh, or the checkout line of their uh, retailer, their uh, tax responsibility would be over. So it gets rid of uh, several thousand pages of uh, IRS code that, no, as you point out, nobody can understand. Um, 
and it uh, saves billions. And I'm not exaggerating here. The uh, the uh, estimates for compliance costs of the current system run into the hundreds of billions of dollars per year. And it's one of the reasons that we have such a hard time competing in such an increasingly global economy because we have such an unbelievably complex tax system and it and it's not free to uh to navigate that system so those costs get embedded in the cost of uh what we produce and it uh artificially inflates the cost of u.s produced goods that's a good point about production about how these costs do raise or, or limit the productivity and the competition um, that U.S. companies can offer, you know, in, in the global economy. Now, with the, with the income tax, that was passed in 1913, and it was done so um, mostly for the ultra-rich. And what people, a lot of people don't understand is that the income tax was actually first proposed by Karl Marx in 1848, and it was done uh, for the income tax and the inheritance tax to bring about full-blown socialism in a in a society and when you know when politicians get up and say that we will not have socialism in the country you know the income tax is a big part of how that becomes reality and makes their statements really not true well that's right the communist manifesto was uh published uh, right around 1850 and that i think the tenth plank of that was a steeply graduated income tax and I think there had been income taxes before that time, going back in ancient history. Um, but uh, Marx and Engels uh, were the ones who popularized that and made it uh, part of the uh, um, <clears throat> part of their ideology. And then in 1860, in the 1860s, the federal government needed money to pay for the Civil War, so they implemented a temporary income tax. And then in the 1890s, Congress came back and said, you know that income tax we had, which was repealed in 1872, a few years after the Civil War ended, um, they said that was not a bad idea. Let's uh, let's try that again. And they did. The problem is the Constitution says that uh, direct taxes should be uniform and indirect taxes should be uh, apportioned, just like seats in the legislature. Well, they... Um, used the uniformity rule for an income tax, and the Supreme Court came back a year or so after that and um, and said, no, if you're going to levy an income tax, it's a, it's clearly a direct tax, so you have to use the apportionment rule and not the uh, and not the uh, uniformity rule. And they tried to figure out for years how to get around that, <clears throat> and they never could. And so they finally said, this would be a lot easier if we just got rid of this pesky uh, uh, apportionment rule. And that's what the 16th Amendment actually does. It gets rid of the apportionment rule for an income tax. Um, so I hate to be so technical there, but it's kind of no, a, that's fine. Comp- it's kind of a complicated story about you know what the 16th Amendment actually does. And there's a lot of misunderstanding around the, uh, the country. And we believe that if we simply went back to um, repealing the 16th Amendment, in, in the repeal language, we said that a, that a constitution, that a uh, income tax was clearly a direct tax and therefore the apportionment rule would apply. Uh, it would accomplish what we would like to see, which is uh, the federal government use other forms of taxation. 
and I think the the one part of the fair tax I think probably is the most popular is the elimination of the IRS. How would that work with the current with your uh, consumption tax um, and the bureaucracy that would really replace the IRS? And are we any really any gaining any efficiency, or are we just replacing one government agency with another? Oh, that's a great question, uh, Brad, um, and one we get asked all the time. And the answer is there would be huge efficiencies in the IRS, which has which is the one government agency that has the authority to compel you to disclose every detail of your financial lives or, or your financial life would be uh, permanently uh, gone. And so there would be no government agency that would have that kind of power over individual citizens. Um, the uh, collection, we think, would probably be taken up by the states. The states already have a sales tax collection mechanism in place. Uh, this would be uh, like adding one line to the form that they already have uh, retailers submit on a uh, usually a quarterly basis, is my understanding. Um, and so, basically, and of course, for that, the uh, state would get to keep a small uh, fraction of a percentage, um, which could amount to a substantial amount of money uh, over the uh, total amount of uh, uh, money being collected on behalf of the federal government. And so it's not an unfunded mandate, unlike so many other uh, things that uh, Washington does, because it's, it's a fully funded mandate. And we think that uh, states will voluntarily comply with that because the, uh, the revenues they'd be getting from that would more than offset what small costs they would have. So it would be a much more, and of course, no one would be required, as I mentioned, no one would be required to disclose all the details of their financial lives. And that's a huge uh, increase in the privacy rights of individual citizens. I think that's exactly right. That's one thing with the IRS that's not talked about a lot is that they are totally invasive with the information that they get from you from how much you make to what you spend on. And so they yep. want every detail and couple mm -hmm. that with the the uh, the bank secrecy act and every time you know and the the role that banks play in spying on uh, different transactions and that goes to that ten thousand dollar limit as well you know with if you make a deposit in cash or take it out that has to be reported to the IRS right and so that would go away as well well you know it's amusing to see the uh, Democrats uh, apparently taking the IRS to court. And trying to get the IRS to release uh, Donald Trump's tax returns, which, uh, <laughs> my understanding, is illegal. The IRS is not uh, allowed to release tax returns to anyone, even Congress. Um, but uh, we'll see how long that holds up, and we'll see how that uh, plays out in court. Because uh, as long as the federal government has access to that information. Um, you know, I think everyone has to kind of keep their fingers crossed and, and hope that it will remain confidential. And that's the thing, too. You never know what governments are going to do with information. Uh, I know this is a big stretch for a lot of people, but I'm reading a book about uh, Nazi doctors and their complicit role in um, what happened over there during World War One, And it started with questionnaires. You know, I'm reading about their medical killing program, and there were innocuous questionnaires, and then that information was turned around and mm -hmm. used to kill like 100,000 people. So right. I'm always very, very cautious with giving the government any type of information.
Well, yeah, and it's my understanding they've already subcontracted uh, some of the uh, IRS functions to uh, India, and uh, which means that uh, a lot of information that's on those uh, documents, uh, tax return documents, uh, may have already been compromised, which is not a comforting thought, but it's uh, reality. Definitely, and the privacy is a huge issue, and that goes to the idea of natural rights, which the country was founded upon, the idea that the Constitution was written to keep government away from violating our natural rights to life, liberty, and property. And the income tax is one of the main ways that the government does violate our right to private property. Right. And with the, with the, the fair tax, how is that different than the government currently being able to take any amount of money, basically, because the 16th Amendment has no limit to what they can take. And, and what would be the limits placed on the fair tax and on this consumption tax as far as the ceiling goes with how much it would be at retail? Well, the current uh, calculation is that it would be 23 cents of every dollar spent. So, um, you know, the thing about the fair tax is it's highly visible. In other words, everybody's paying the same tax on the same uh, transactions. And uh, your tax burden is no longer a function of how effective your lobbyist is or what sort of a, a protected group you're in. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we all have an obligation if we live in this society to help fund the essential functions of government, whatever we deem those to be. And... Uh, and this basically puts everybody on a level playing field. And this, frankly, is where a lot of the pushback comes because, um, you know, the the gist of some of the objections we get, even from private citizens, is, oh, yeah, take away all those carve-outs and loopholes and exemptions and special interest provisions, except the ones that benefit me. Keep those and right. get rid of all the rest. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. of course, obviously, uh, that... That won't work because they all benefit somebody or they wouldn't be in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so our idea is treat everyone the same, return the principle of equal protection under the law to our tax system for the first time in 106 or seven years and, uh, <clears throat> and, and watch the economy take off. And, and I was reading up on fairtax.org and there's a lot of great information on there. And that the income tax especially is like a 2 to 5% drag on the GDP of the economy. And so it's not just individuals or businesses that suffer under it. It's the entire economy. That's right. And that's, uh, that's one of the reasons the fair tax would be such a huge job creator. Um, and, of course, poll after poll after poll shows and has for years shown that the American people want faster economic growth and they want more job creation. And uh, the fair tax would deliver that. We haven't even gotten into the biggest economic benefit, which is the fact that it makes the entire tax system or the, the entire tax burden border adjustable. And we, we won't get into that because I know some of your listeners would be uh, bored to tears over something that technical. But needless to say, the rest of the world has been moving toward border adjustable taxes for 20 years now. And we so far have resisted that. Uh, worldwide trend, and we're paying a huge price for it economically. You know, uh, President Trump is putting tariffs in place, which would do uh, a lot of what we wanted to do with the fair tax, but, but there are all sorts of 
unintended consequences with tariffs mm-hmm. and protectionism has never worked. Uh, it has a it has a really lousy history both in this country and uh, in in foreign countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you just look up Smoot Hawley, which was the tariff that was put in place in I think it was 1929, right before the Great Depression, um, and you'll see that it was uh, it's attributed by economists to increasing the depth and the length of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, protectionism is not the way to go, although if we're getting, uh, you know, if we're getting discriminated against, I don't have a problem with uh, some retaliatory measures, but it makes no sense to have our underlying tax system one that, uh, that uh, handicaps our producers in the global marketplace because we could do something about that if we just had the political will to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, some of the other aspects of our competitive situation, like the the large differential in labor rate costs, um, you know, we don't ha- we can't do something about that unilaterally. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the objections I get is, oh, it's the labor cost difference that's driving our trade deficit. Well. That's certainly a part of it, but uh, you know what country has the highest labor rates in the world? That would be Germany. And do you know what Germany's uh, trade deficit situation is? They don't have a trade deficit. They have a trade surplus. So I'm not saying that the labor cost is not a, a factor. What I'm saying is it's clearly not the only factor, and it may not be the, the most important factor. And uh, we simply cannot afford to uh, continue with a tax system that handicaps us in the global marketplace uh, to yeah. the extent that the current one does. Definitely. I think on the global scale and the countrywide scale, it's definitely um, a plus on the fair tax side. Now, how would it impact the average listener? How would it improve their life over their current situation with filing taxes and worrying about the rebate, the payroll tax, and the other taxes that will be eliminated by the fair tax? Well, the rebate is the most uh, administratively simple and uh, straightforward way to make the tax rate progressive. By that, I mean that uh, the, the amount of your rebate is tied to your consumption level uh, and to, uh, or not your consumption level, but it's, it's tied to... Uh, Um, it's tied to your income under the poverty line. No, it's no, it's no. not tied to okay. your income at all. Um, it's tied to your family size. That's what I was searching for. I was having a okay. senior moment there. No it's problem. tied to your family size and to the uh, <clears throat> and to the sales tax rate on poverty level purchases. So everyone gets a rebate that's that basically untaxes them up to the poverty level. But to the extent that they spend over the poverty level they're going to be paying more at the register in taxes than they get back in the rebate. Hmm. Um, we can show it to you on a graph, and it looks pretty pretty slick. Uh, and basically, uh, it means that the uh, more you consume, not only the more you pay on an absolute basis in tax, but the more you pay, uh, your rate goes up also. Hmm. So that's the true meaning of progressive. and. Um, <clears throat> but it never it never touches the twenty three percent stated rate. Mm. 
um, because of the rebate, because you're always getting the rebate back. So the rebate is always uh, subtracted from whatever you're paying at the uh, register. And it's a very simple way, and, and, and it, you would get the rebate monthly. We had originally talked about doing it to buy a direct deposit or sending out checks and letting the Social Security Administration administer it because they're in the business of sending out hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of checks every month. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> since the fair tax was developed, smart card technology and point-of-sale technology has come light years from where it was then. And it would be much easier, I think, to distribute the uh, rebate with, by giving people a smart card and just adding that their rebate amount to that card every month and letting them swipe that card when they go to the grocery store or the department store or whatever retailer they uh, they get charged sales taxes on. And I think, too, that there's a lot of talk about the universal basic income right now. And a lot of people are afraid that's just going to be a tax on the existing welfare system. But, but with the, this taxation format, with the prebate, that you're really almost um, implementing a universal basic income in a sense. Well, we don't like to look at it that way mm -hmm. um, because to us, it, you know, it, we, get, we get accused of... Uh, uh, bringing a new entitlement into the into the society, mm -hmm. and we argue with that, and we say it is no more an entitlement than a refund of your taxes if you overpay at the end of the year. It's just that it's paid monthly before the taxes are paid at the cash register, rather than you having to wait till the end of the year to get your money back. So we don't consider it to be an entitlement. We consider it to be. Uh, a, uh, a mechanism, the simplest and easiest mechanism for untaxing people up to the poverty level. Everybody is untaxed up to the poverty level. You are a net taxpayer to the extent that you consume above the poverty level and to the extent that you consume at or below the poverty level, your effective tax rate is zero. Gotcha. I gotcha. Now, has the poverty level been determined, or is that something that's going to be uh, like Social Security benefits determined uh, year to year? Yes, the Department of Health and Human Services already does that annually, and mm -hmm. we just uh, piggyback on, on that system. So there's gotcha. no sense reinventing the wheel. We're trying to be as efficient about this as we can. I gotcha. Now, as far as the prebate goes, you, you were talking about a smart card. Now, for an average family of, let's say, four, what would that look like monthly for them coming in if they're under the poverty line, or is that going to change depending on where that poverty line falls? Well, it'll stay uh, the same for a given year. I mean, mm -hmm. they, the, the Department of Health and Human Services adjusts it up to annually. In some years, they don't change it, is my understanding. Uh, in other years, they do. Um, but it's going to be the a fixed amount for a year so that you can count on uh, that amount of money being put into your, if if they decide to go with a smart card, put onto your account on an annual or a monthly basis, I should say. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so that money can be used, like it would go into the, uh, onto the smart card like uh, January 1st or every 1st of the month or like 15th of the month. 
um, so people can use that. Yeah, bank once a month, and it'd be fairly early in the month, so that because that's why it's called a prebate, mm-hmm. not a rebate, because it's pre because it's before the taxes are actually paid. And of course, if you spend above the poverty level, and of course, that would it, with smart cards, one of the advantages is you, it could be set up so that the only thing that the funds on that card can be used for are to defray sales taxes as long as there are funds in the account to cover it. And so if you spend above the poverty level, then you're going to exhaust your uh, allotment, your sales tax rebate amount, uh, sometime during the month. And then from that point forward, you would have to uh, pay taxes out of pocket, just like uh, you do now. I got gotcha. you. So, yeah, so it's a very simple way of, uh, like I say, making the, the effective rate progressive and and untaxing everyone up to the poverty level. Now, is the, the fair tax going to replace the payroll tax, which is a hidden tax that I think most people don't really think about, but it does affect them directly in their income? Right. Yes, it, it, the answer to your question is yes, it does replace uh, income taxes at both the corporate and the uh, individual level. It replaces payroll taxes. And, of course, there's an employer and an employee side of payroll taxes. It replaces both of those. It also replaces the uh, inheritance tax. Um, and uh, and so it basically, and now it doesn't touch um, ex- what are called excise taxes, which, are the, which include the, the popular sin taxes on alcohol and tobacco and things like that. Um, the people who who uh, designed the fair tax just thought that would open up a uh, another uh, politically sensitive area, and they just wanted to stay out of that. So it doesn't uh, touch excise taxes, but it does replace ninety five percent of the federal government's revenues with a very fair and simple uh, consumption tax. Wow, that's. Is the fair tax gaining ground? I know when Neil Bortz was promoting this, you know, back, uh, I think about 10 years ago, I know I got the book, The Fair Tax, and there was a lot of sentiment about getting this, uh, getting this done. How is the sentiment now with politicians and in politics in general with the fair tax? Well, you know, we had a setback in December of 17, uh, about a little over a year ago, when uh, Congress passed this uh provision that they called tax reform, but is was really apparently more uh, tax reduction than it was tax reform. In other words, it didn't change the overall structure of the tax system like mm-hmm. we believe is drastically needed. <clears throat> uh, and as a result of that vote, as well as the omnibus uh, spending bill, um, we're now looking at the return of trillion-dollar-a-year deficits. Wow. Um, the uh, CBO has said that uh, the deficit for the current fiscal year that we're in will be a little less than a trillion dollars. I think their estimate is something like $960 billion or something like that. But <clears throat> I don't have any confidence that Congress won't find additional ways to spend more money between now and September 30th, which I think is the end of the fiscal year. So I'm expecting this year to come in at a trillion dollars or within spitting distance of a trillion. And I'm certainly expecting next year to be above a trillion dollar deficit. And uh, my personal view is this economy just cannot withstand trillion dollar a year deficits indefinitely. 
And my my other uh, view is the members of Congress are going to do nothing other than continue to kick this can down the road and ignore the problem as long as they possibly can. So <clears throat> some of us have turned our attention to another uh, mechanism that the Founding Fathers left us for a Congress that refuses to uh, pay attention to the people that they theoretically represent, and that's called the Convention of States. Hmm. And uh, there was a uh, there was a simulation held in Williamsburg a couple of years ago, I think in September of 2017, and they plan to have another simulation this coming September. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we can... We can bypass Congress since they have been uh, um, much more interested in their own self-preservation and their own self-interest than they have in doing the work of the people, um, and uh, and so that's what we're about right now. Some of us, not not all of us. There are some uh, fair tax folks who still think that uh, if we just make the case persuasively enough to the members of Congress that we can. We can win the day. Um, frankly, I've um, been trying to do that for almost twenty years now, and we haven't wow. gotten very far. And uh, so we're uh, looking at other avenues. Some of us. Now, is that where you would try to repeal the Sixteenth Amendment at the state level? Vote on that, or is that some other mechanism? Um, well, the simulation—the simulation that I referred to in Williamsburg uh, voted out six amendments, six proposed amendments. I've got to be very careful with my language here because I don't want to leave the listeners with the idea that the convention would have the authority to ratify amendments. They would not. The Constitution states that there are two mechanisms for uh, initiating or proposing amendments. One is the mechanism that's been used for all 27 of the amendments we have, and that is uh, two-thirds vote of both chambers of Congress. Uh, the other mechanism that's in the Constitution but has never been used is the Convention of States where the states gather together. And the way I look at it is it's just a more efficient way of, of uh, actually doing the wordsmithing that would mm -hmm. be required to actually develop constitutional amendments. And then out of that convention, uh, there would be certain... Now, there were six amendments voted out of the... Uh, out of the simulation, one of those six was a repeal of the 16th Amendment. Hmm. Um, and so we have some precedent, although that, of course, since it was a simulation, that's where the process ended uh, two years ago. Um, but we believe if we had a real convention and we actually voted out a repeal of the 16th Amendment, uh, and then, then the real work would begin because you have to have three-fourths of the states uh, vote by their legislatures to ratify uh, a given amendment before it becomes a part of the Constitution. And that's a tough, tough hill to climb. Um, we've been trying to get 34 states to call the convention for the same purpose. There have been over 400 applications filed with Congress since the, I think Virginia filed the first one a couple of years after the Constitution was ratified. Um, and there have been Several hundred more submitted by the various states. In fact, every state except Hawaii has submitted at least one application for a convention, but they've never aggregated to the same purpose 
uh, or two thirds of the states calling for a convention for the same purpose. And so, uh, the, they've never actually, Congress has never actually held one. Hmm. Um, and I shouldn't say Congress hasn't held it because Congress's only role, according to the Constitution, is to set the time and the place of the first meeting. But the uh, convention could, uh, if they chose to, could meet at that time and that place and say, we're going to adjourn and um, reassemble at a different time and a different place. And, and they control the convention once it's convened. Uh, within within limits, one of the concerns would be, well, they could do anything, including scrap the current uh, Constitution, and and of course they can't do that because Article Five says it's for the purpose of proposing amendments. In fact, that's the way it's referred to in the Constitution itself. It's mm. it's a convention for proposing amendments. Gotcha. That's well, that's very interesting because a lot of people when they talk about politics. They don't talk about using that mechanism to really make substantial, uh, systematic change. And right. so repealing the 16th Amendment would be a, a big, big part uh, in that. Now, do you think that the fair tax could pass without the repeal of the 16th Amendment? Honestly, no. Okay. <laughs> because, um, you know, we've been at this, like I say, for many, many years now. And when they were discussing uh, tax reform year before last, and the Republicans were under a lot of pressure, I think, to get something done other than the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Um, and they knew that they had to have more to show for uh, one year of having majority control of the Senate, majority control of the House and the White House, other than the confirmation of one Supreme Court justice. And so <clears throat> tax reform became sort of their lifeboat, and even then we weren't seriously in the conversation, uh, primarily because the American people really don't understand this issue very uh, deeply, and there wasn't sufficient pressure put on uh, members of Congress to put the national interest ahead of their own self-interest, and I already alluded to the fact they look at the income tax as a means of staying in power, and they're not going to give that up absent enormous, enormous political power. Yeah, that's true. It, uh, if the American people, if they want it bad enough, then I guess that's when change actually does happen. Now, going back to the, the, the actual mechanics of the fair tax, now, how would it affect an average person who is up slightly above the poverty line? Would they see a net benefit from that if versus the current tiered or a regressive really income tax that we have today is it going to benefit them and uh is it going to give them more money in their pocket basically to spend on the things that they want to spend it on well uh you'd have to run the numbers for a specific case to see mm -hmm. you know who the, the, the fair tax was designed so that it wouldn't create a lot of winners and losers mm -hmm. it, it, gotcha. it minimized the winners and losers and most people are going to find that uh in terms of the taxes they actually pay, they're probably going to um, be about where they are now. The exception to that is uh, really wealthy people who uh, take advantage of all the various loopholes and carve-outs. Um, you know, our system is theoretically, I call it theoretically progressive, but actually it's not mm -hmm. because 
because uh, the effective tax rate for many of the wealthiest people, and, and Warren Buffett has commented that he pays a lower effective tax rate than his secretary does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people understand that, uh, you know, we have a theoretically progressive system, but it doesn't actually work that way in real life because of the the corruption of the system. Um, so... Um, most people in the middle income range, I'd say, are going to be about where they are now. If you just look at where, um, it's, if you just look at their tax outlays, mm-hmm. the real benefit, of course, is the fact that we're going to be much more competitive as a society, and there are going to be a lot more good-paying jobs out there, mm-hmm. and uh, you're going to have a lot more opportunity for upward mobility under a fair tax type environment than you would under the current environment. Gotcha. Well, that's important because that's really what America was founded upon, the idea that if you work hard and that if you, uh, you know, provide value for others, then you can advance. Well, yes, uh, I heard somebody say that an entrepreneur is someone who solves other people's problems on a profit margin. (laughs) And I thought, that's a a pretty good way of looking at it. That is, definitely. And this... This takes away the idea. A lot of people, when they're looking at uh, overtime, a lot of times they'll they'll actually be worse off if they work more. You know, they have to do a calculation that overtime gets taxed more, and a lot of people will decide not to work less because of the current system. That's right. That's right. Because they because that additional income moves them into a higher bracket, and uh, and that takes away a lot of the incentive to. to work longer and harder. That's one of the perverse things about our system is that, uh, you know, we have a capitalist system overall, mm-hmm. but there are some uh, deviations from capitalist uh, principles that, uh, and that's that's one of them, that uh, make it function less than, than optimal. Right. And a tax, like you talked about the excise tax or sin tax, and those taxes are specifically to punish people or to discourage them from buying those products. And That's so right. their, their income taxes really, is it designed to uh, have people work less? That's a, that's a question I think a lot of people have. Well, there's the, uh, the old uh, adage that uh, what you tax more, you get less of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, we have a consumption-driven society, mm-hmm. and uh, most of us think a little bit less consumption wouldn't be a bad thing. Right. Um, you know, and our saving, of course, there's only two things you can do with a dollar. One is use it for current consumption. The other is save it mm-hmm. or invest it. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've seen calculations that show the, uh, the uh, personal savings rate would go up substantially. And, of course, we have one of the lowest savings rates in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Our savings rate, last time I checked, and this was a year or so ago, but our savings rate, I think, was up around 5%. It had actually dropped down below zero during the, uh, when the, uh, real estate crunch hit back in 08 and 09 and I guess a little bit in 10. Um, but it's, it's climbed back, but it's still very, very low compared to what it has been historically in the United States. And, uh, Brad, do you know what the savings rate is in China? No, what is it? It's about 40%. So, wow. I mean, now there are a lot of uh, there are economists who say, well, that's too high, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, they, China doesn't have all the social safety net pro 
programs that we do, like mm-hmm. like Social Security and whatnot. And I think Chinese people feel like they're more on their own and have to take care of themselves and and plan for the future. Um, but but nevertheless, the Chinese savings rate is huge compared to ours, and that's one of the reasons that we're so dependent on foreign capital to fund our economic growth. And of course, capital is the uh, gasoline that makes the uh, economic engine run. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you, uh, in fact, I saw uh, Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx, on one of the talk shows, this was a couple of years ago now, and he said that their economists have tracked capital formation and the unemployment rate, or the employment rate, I guess. Um, and he said they're just like two tracks on a railroad. He said they go up and down in almost perfect uh, parallel uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we know how to create jobs. It's make uh, capital uh, um, more, make a more uh, favorable environment for capital. And if you attract capital, that's going to create jobs better than anything else you can do. That's exactly right. An income, an income tax is a tax on capital because I, I view every individual, whether they work for themselves or they work for others, as a capitalist because everybody owns their mind and their body and right. from that their labor and I think everybody is a capitalist and maybe they don't realize <clears throat> Well, the other thing is uh, there was a book written, I think it came out about 2011 by a gentleman named Travis Brown and it was How Money Walks and he analyzed 10 years of, of IRS data on state-to-state movements and he found that the 10 states with, uh, and I don't remember have the numbers committed to memory, but the 10 states with no income, or I guess it's nine states with no income tax, experienced net gains in population and net gains in AGI or adjusted gross income, fairly substantial, by fairly substantial amounts. And the 10 states with the highest income tax rates experienced net outflows in both of those measurements. Wow. So, and, it, and there's that book is just chock full of data like that. He goes state by state and analyzes where people are moving. But the the bottom line is, people are moving out of these states, especially if they have capital to invest. They're moving out of these states with uh, high income tax rates and moving into states with no or low uh, income tax rates. And if that doesn't show you what the uh, economic impact of uh, the income tax is, and I don't know what it takes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a, that's a great point about it really limiting economic activity. And people, I think one of the, the objections to the third tax that I was reading is that it hasn't been tried anywhere, but in reality, there's two states, Texas and Florida, that really rely on mostly sales tax. Uh, that's right. There are actually nine states that do not tax wages. Um, two of those, Tennessee and I think New Hampshire, tax dividends and interest, although Tennessee's phasing theirs out. Um, so there were seven states that do not tax wages and um, and two more that, uh, uh, well, there are nine that don't tax wages and two of those do tax dividends and income. Um, but, you know, this is all taken into consideration in these numbers that I cited from uh, Travis Brown's book. And uh, the, the the picture is clear. People 
people, when they have the option of moving, they're taking advantage of that option, and they're moving out of areas where uh, they don't feel like they're getting a fair deal from uh, their state government. And and I, I like that because it's supposed to be, the states are supposed to be um, competitive, that if one thing is tried somewhere else, then you can see it try. you know, if you don't That's like right. it, then you can move. But unfortunately, at the federal level, when things are tried, we're all stuck with it. Yeah. That's right. Well, I think uh, Justice Brandeis of the Supreme Court referred to the uh, states as laboratories of democracy. Hmm. And, you know, this is a perfect example. Um, you know, some states don't have an income tax and they're reaping the economic benefits. Yeah, definitely. Now, with with the fair tax, the first year, how would that work with the prebate? Because People are going to be receiving the prebate before they spend any money. How is that going to be funded? Uh, is that going to be funded out of current tax revenue or deficit spending? No, it'd be funded out of current tax revenue uh, only to the and the only uh, deficit would be, you know, the fact that it's paid on a monthly basis, um, and those taxes aren't uh, aren't paid until some of those taxes aren't paid until the end of the month. But that could be. Um, modulated by saying, okay, we can calculate when the average person goes over the poverty level. Let's say it's the 15th of the month. Then we'll distribute the, the uh, rebate amounts on the 15th of the month, which is, which by that time we will have, uh, you know, collected enough sales taxes to offset the, uh, the cost of the rebate. Hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because yep. those, those people are still going to be paying sales taxes at the, uh, at the register. Okay, I got you. So, yeah, people are going to be paying sales tax from day one, right? So That's right. when people are consuming something, if it, let's say we do it at January 1st, 2020, you know, right. that January 1st, that's when people start paying that, that sales tax instead of the income tax or the consumption. That's right. And that April 15th, they'd still have to file a tax return, an income tax return for the previous year, mm-hmm. but that will be the last income tax return they'll ever have to file in their lives. Now, that sounds like a great thing. That just made me smile there, uh, <laughs> Phil, because I think there would be a huge celebration across the country because, you know, we've gotten away from debtors' prisons, but you can still go to jail if you don't pay your income tax. Well, yeah, uh, or, or worse. <laughs> or they, can, <laughs> or worse. they can seize your assets or, um, you know, the IRS has enormous power. Mm-hmm. And, there's a, you know, I like to say they're the closest thing that, the federal government has to a terrorist organization. Um, that is true. They they engage in financial terrorism rather than um, rather than physical terrorism, but uh, I think financial in some cases is, is just as bad. And and people forget too that every law, every regulation is done at the barrel of a government gun. That That's if right. you resist, let's say you don't pay your taxes, right? Which I don't advocate for. But uh, let's say you somebody chooses not to, and then they come to seize your bank account, but you've already closed it. Then they're going to come to your house and try to seize your property. And mm-hmm. if you resist that, then they're going to try to arrest you. And if you resist that, then we 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 know what happens then. That's right. And we make a distinction between uh, you know tax reform uh, and tax resistance. You know, we don't advocate uh, people uh, stop adhering to what is the law, even though we don't agree with the current law, uh, it still is the law of the land, and we are a nation of laws, not of, of people. And so we 
have never advocated that anyone uh, stop paying their taxes or protest in that manner. Uh, we think it's uh, far more consistent with our representative form of democracy that we uh, petition our lawmakers and try to get them to uh, um, do what's needed, and failing that, to use the other tools given to us by the founders in the Constitution. Definitely. I think, too, a lot of that comes down to education, that the American, you know, the average American citizen really is not um, conversant. They, they really don't understand the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or what it was based upon. I think the idea of natural law is is looked at as an antiquated idea, but I think that individualism and the idea that you have inherent rights still applies today. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I find so disturbing about um, our political situation in the 21st century is that it seems like we've divided up into opposing camps, mm -hmm. and the two sides spend more time exchanging insults with each other and uh, and uh, criticizing each other than they do actually trying to formulate solutions to the problems that we face. And, you know, some of our founding fathers were not big fans of uh, political parties <clears throat> and uh, warned of the dangers of factionalism. George Washington, in his uh, Farewell to the Nation address, which was published in a Philadelphia newspaper in 1796, uh, warned of the dangers of splitting the country up in factions. And, and the founders believed that you had to put, when you're Talking about uh, national policy, you have to put the national interest at the forefront. And um, if if you it, and it seems like we put partisanship at the forefront of every public policy discussion. And the first thing people want to know is: is this good for Republicans or bad for Republicans? Is it good for Democrats or bad for Democrats? And my response to that is: it's good for the nation. I don't really care whether it's good for. Uh, which political party and which one it's bad for. And um, now with the, with the fair tax, you guys have support on both sides of the aisle. Is that correct? That's what I was... Well, we have, a, we have a minimum amount of support from Democrats. Some okay. Democrats, for instance, at the uh, state level here in Georgia, we had our bill in uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, and we had uh, four, I think it was four Democratic uh, co-sponsors. Yeah, uh, we had four... Uh, uh, members of the Georgia legislature who've signed on as co-sponsors um, would like to get more and frankly my emphasis is on getting more because the fair tax was developed using what I call a ideologically neutral methodology in other words <clears throat> they used various marketing techniques to find out what the American people across the ideological spectrum wanted in a tax system they didn't just go to Republicans they didn't just go to Democrats they didn't uh, distinguish uh, party affiliation or ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, they just wanted to know what the American public wanted in a tax system. And that's, for example, how the rebate was developed. Um, you know, we get criticized by some conservatives for the rebate. In fact, we've had a, a libertarian member of the Georgia House who said, yeah, I'm all with, with you. I, I understand the economic benefits of uh, tax and consumption rather than income. Just get rid of that rebate and I'm with you. Well, my response to that is that's not an economic objection. That's an ideological objection. 
and we are not going to cater to either side of the ideological divide, and that hurts us at times because, mm-hmm. <clears throat> unfortunately, we live in such a polarized society that uh, when you have a uh, a proposal that has been supported by some members of one side of the partisan divide, the other side of the partisan divide is inclined to say, oh, that's that Republican or Democratic uh, bill. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have anything to do with that. And uh, and with taxation, it seems like on the other side of the aisle, you know, I know this is a politically neutral like you were talking about, but with the, the Democratic Party, they're, they're throwing out ideas to tax people up to 75 to even 90% of their income. So mm-hmm. th- there seems to be a huge divide there. Well, yeah, the Democrats, uh, what you often hear is, oh, we have to keep an income tax in some form to make sure the, quote, the rich pay their fair share. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is, well, <laughs> you know, according to you, the rich aren't paying their fair share now because the rich have a lower effective tax rate. I mean, mm-hmm. the super rich. I'm not right. talking about people at the 90th percentile, but I'm talking about people at the 99th percentile. Mm-hmm. Um, super rich have lower effective rate than a guy working, you know, a regular nine-to-five job. Mm-hmm. Now, how is that progressive, and how is that making the rich pay their fair share? Right. So there's a huge disconnect, I think, between the theory of the income tax and how it actually operates in in our uh, in our government. And with the income tax, too, you talk about the rich paying more, it's because they would consume more. So yes. when if they bought a yacht or something like that, they'd be paying that twenty three percent tax on right. that hundred million dollar yacht, and they wouldn't be right. able to to skirt around that. Now, what about people who have their own business or a corporate entity, and they buy stuff for themselves through their company? How would that work? Because a lot of these mega, you know, hugely rich people, they don't buy anything personally. It's all through their different corporations or NGOs or foundations. Well. You know, the idea behind the fair tax is uh, it's less dependent on um, who the party to the transaction is and more dependent on what the purpose of the transaction is. So, for example, if a, if, if a corporation bought uh, Thanksgiving turkeys to distribute to their employees uh, right before Thanksgiving, they would have to pay the sales tax on those turkeys because those are being purchased for personal consumption, even though business inputs are exempt from the tax. Hmm. And so the the situation that you raise where people are buying personal stuff through a corporation would represent a new enforcement challenge, and there would have to be provisions made for that. We might have to audit some some of these NGOs or uh, some of these uh, private corporations. Um, But nevertheless, we're still talking about a massive decrease in the number of points of enforcement, I think the uh, estimate is that there are 125 million uh, retailers that would have to file um, have to file sales tax returns, whereas there are like something like 200 over 200 million or 250 million uh, tax returns filed every year. Hmm. Gotcha. Uh, income income tax returns. So you're talking about a massive reduction in the number of points of enforcement. Uh, and you're also talking about a massive reduction in the simplicity of the system. The current uh, system, according to the Commerce Clearinghouse, is over 73,000 pages, 
uh, we would replace it with a bill that right now numbers less than 150 pages. Uh, of course, it might, by the time it got through Congress, might expand to several hundred, but that's mm -hmm. still a 90-plus percent reduction in the complexity of the uh, system if you measure it by the number of pages required to document it. Gotcha, gotcha. So people, there's a lot less businesses paying sales tax than there are individuals paying income tax, and so the individuals and corporations. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's right with corporations as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And with the idea that a lot of these celebrities, especially on the left, they'll come out and say that they support paying more in taxes. Uh, mm -hmm. but they want everybody else to do it. But if they're consuming more, they're automatically, so instead of saving their money, they can go out and buy stuff if they want more revenue to go to the federal government. That's right. That's right. And so I think that's a good message that people who can, um, you know, who do want to pay more in taxes, which personally, you know, I believe that uh, government should be funded, you know, voluntarily, and this is one step towards voluntary taxation, where people with the fair tax control what they spend and how much money goes to the federal government. So I think that's a that's a great part of uh, the plan. Well, yeah, and uh, you bring up another interesting point, which is, um, you know, our current system is theoretically voluntary, but it gets mm -hmm. back to what I said just a minute ago. There's a huge disconnect between the theory of the income tax and the way it's actually implemented in our government today. If you think it's voluntary, just try telling the IRS, well, I'm not submitting any tax returns anymore because I'm electing uh, my option not to. <laughs> and see how yeah, far that gets you. Wesley Snipes tried that, and I think he got like <laughs> five years in real prison, so yeah. federal prison. So I don't, I don't recommend that for everybody. But, Phil, where, where, where can people follow your work? And if they want to learn more about the fair tax, what's the best way for them to find out? Uh, you can just Google fair tax, and the uh, Americans for Fair Taxation website is uh, is up, and it has a a world of information out there about uh, the fair tax and what it would do. There are a number of white papers showing how it would impact various sectors of the economy, various industries, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think you'll find it uh, very enlightening. Yeah, and definitely. As, you know, when I first uh, encountered it, I thought, well, that's kind of a wacky idea. You want to eliminate the income tax altogether and replace it with a national sales tax? Mm -hmm. That's uh, kind of over the top. And But the more I dug into it, I try to do so with an open mind as I try to evaluate every new idea that comes along. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more I dug into it, the more I realized that it was what I call deceptively simple. Uh, in other words, yeah, it's a lot simpler than the current system, but it's, it addresses pretty much every complaint that people have about the current system. And that's on both and, sides of the aisle because you talked about how it still is revenue neutral or actually is going to be projected to bring in more revenue because GDP will go up, more right. jobs, people will have right. more money to spend. And then on the other side, it has the prebate, so people under the poverty line aren't going to be taxed, and they'll have the money to pay the sales tax before it even leaves their pocket. Right. I got you. Right, and, and yeah, I mean, all of that's very true, and uh, and we think it's much better than the current system, much, much, much better than the current system, and would uh, certainly enhance our ability to compete in the global economy. Mm 
um, and would so, sort of, uh, I don't know if it would completely eliminate the need for these tariffs that are getting so much uh, blowback or so much resistance. But, you know, tariffs, historically, uh, they, they, they create jobs uh, on the end of the economy where the tariffs are being levied. So, it, so I think these tariffs are levied on imports of foreign steel and aluminum. Mm-hmm. So they're probably helping the steel and aluminum producers in the United States, mm-hmm. but they're hurting the downstream industries which use steel and aluminum because they're driving up the cost of that and they're making their products less competitive. So, you know, it, it would take an economist to figure out whether it's a net gain or a net loss. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just not, uh, it hasn't proven to be a, a, an effective way to go over the years that it's been tried. Yeah, definitely with tariffs, it is definitely, there's an unseen part of that that doesn't show up in the news or in political speeches, but everybody pays a distributed cost when tariffs are put on stuff, even indirectly to the people who um, ostensibly benefit from it because the cost of goods go up across the Mm -hmm. economy. Right. And I think the fair tax is is a good bridge. Like, let's get rid of the 1913, 16th Amendment. Let's put in something new and see if it works, right? I don't know. Right. But it's hard to experiment, I guess, on 330 million. Is there any um, chance that a smaller country or even individual states would adopt something like the fair tax to replace directly their income tax? Well, we're trying to get uh, something like that done here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a challenging uh, undertaking, uh, both politically and uh, economically. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're. It, it, and as I mentioned earlier, we did not have a bill in this session that just uh, ended a couple of days ago. We hope to have one again in uh, next uh, uh, next January's session. There's a session that starts next January. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you've got uh, the same polarization at the state level that, you, that we see, unfortunately, at the federal level, and that you know, the Democrats look upon this as the Republican initiative, and that means they don't want to have any part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of the Republicans are wedded to this idea of handing out uh, tax preferences. And I got into a spirited debate with a uh, gentleman who was running for Congress, who was a state legislator, and he was talking about how, how wonderful this uh, – tax credit is for the movie industry that's brought so many new jobs into the movie industry right. uh, in, into Georgia. And I said, well, you know, what you're wanting to do for the movie industry in Georgia is what I want to do for every industry in Georgia. And he just looked there and looked at me and had this deer in the headlights look like he didn't know how to come back at that one. That's um, exactly right, because these um, tax credits for these big businesses like Amazon and other places to move into certain areas, it's used as a carrot and a stick to yeah. punish some and reward others. Yeah, and some states have done, I think Louisiana used to have a uh, tax credit for movie industries, and they did an analysis after they've been in place a few years, and they found that it was a net uh, loss to hmm. the uh, state government. Wow. And um, It would be great to see um, that sort of 
uh, economic activity in every industry across the economy and see that the GDP go up 2 to 5%, I don't think people would know what to do if the economy was growing at 7% a year. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And people, and you, you throw numbers like that out, Brad, to people and their eyes glaze over because they don't really think abstractly like that and they aren't sure what that would mean to them personally. Mm-hmm. But it would be huge. It would be absolutely enormous. I mean, you know, the, the uh, current uh, administration is talking about trying to get the uh, rate of GDP growth up to 3 or 4% a year. Well, we're talking about more than double that uh, right. initially. So we're talking about an absolutely enormous expansion in, uh, in the uh, state's economy or the, the, the nation's economy if we did it at the national level. And I think, too, that the more that individuals get to, they don't have that huge bureaucracy on top of them, they don't have the financial spying, they don't have that pressure, which they, and the compliance issue, which everybody accepts as that stress around April 15th has to happen, when in reality it, it doesn't, we don't have to live that way. That's right. Exactly. It, we just had, you know, someone described uh, 9-11 as a failure of imagination. And what what that phrase referred to was the fact that the federal government apparently had warnings that there were some uh, some Muslim terrorists who were thinking about hijacking uh, jetliners and flying them, crashing them into uh, some of the uh, high-rise buildings in some of the major cities. And they just nobody had ever done that before, and they just couldn't imagine it happening. So they didn't take. Uh, the threat seriously and they didn't take any precaution and of course we know now what what the outcome of that was yeah definitely and i think it's a great you know personally i think I, I would need to read up more on the fair tax i've read up extensively on it but i like that there's an alternative out there to the current system and this seems to be the only uh, legitimate replacement for the IRS and the income tax out there. Are there other proposals like the fair tax, but a little bit different, that are competing with it? Not really. I mean, mm-hmm. there used to be another sales tax proposal that was out there before the sales tax that uh, Representative Billy Tozen was uh, promoting, but it's kind of, uh, since he uh, left Congress, uh, it's kind of uh, died uh, out. Of course, the flat taxers are always out there, but the flat tax, we don't even consider that tax reform because it still keeps the the income tax mechanism in place and it could easily morph back into the same monstrosity we have today. So one of the things I've come to, to understand, Brad, is when I first got started, I thought the the resistance would come from people who just couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of taxing consumption rather than income, and that is an obstacle. Okay, right. Uh, an even bigger obstacle is the fact that we've all become accustomed to being able to get the uh, federal government or the state government, in some cases, to pick winners and losers in the economy, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know that that's the proper uh, role for for the government to fill. And you know, more I think about it, more I think you know. We can have that, but the consequence is you're going to have um, tremendous complexity and you're going to have um, 
a tax system that's perceived as unfair. Those are the two of the biggest complaints we get about the current system. Mm-hmm. It's unfair and it's overly complex. Well, if you're going to continue to expect the federal government to be in the business of handing out tax preferences and preferential treatment to this group or that group, um, you're going to have to live with that complexity and that unfair, that perceived unfairness because the people who don't get the preferential treatment are always going to perceive that that's unfair. Right. Um, and, it's, and it leads to incredible comp- complexity mm-hmm. uh, over a period of years. Uh, and, and so I've come to connect those two in a way that I probably didn't when I first started. Yeah, you're right about the complexity and the unfairness. And I think, too, that complexity breeds corruption, like you talk right. about with these picking the winners and losers. And people always talk about getting money out of politics, but in reality, you know, Americans spend $7 trillion a year on government. And the more complex it is, the easier it is to siphon that off to different interest groups. That's right. And we think that, uh, that the uh, transparency of the fair tax would be a huge boon in terms of um, you know, the, they say the sunlight is the best disinfectant. Right. Um, and we think that that would be huge if we could have a tax system where everybody pays the same tax on the same items and everybody uh, who has a certain family size gets the same rebate that every other family size of that level gets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the perception of unfairness might not totally go away, but it would certainly be uh, dramatically reduced, and the complexity of the system unquestionably would be much, much less than it, than what we see today. Yep, complexity is something that I think everybody can appreciate when they try to fill out their IRS forms and they have to pay somebody to actually um, do their taxes for them, which I think is, like we talked about, pretty insane. Now, what are your what are your hope What are your hopes with the fair tax? Do you hope that it just brings up the discussion where people are talking about the taxation system, or do you really believe that the fair tax does have a a, a chance at changing the tax code? Well, it's going to take an enormous amount of political pressure, and I, like I alluded to earlier, my personal view is that. Convention of States is the gotcha. is the way to go because mm-hmm. we've already got a number of people involved in that who are pushing that who who are on our side of this issue and um, you know another issue that uh, was voted out was term limits well, I don't know how you feel about term limits I've heard the pros and the cons I, I like term limits <laughs> yeah I'm I'm a big proponent of term limits and I think yeah. and I've heard all the arguments against them and I think mm-hmm. that. Some of the objections uh, have legitimacy, but I still think when you net it all out and look at the pros and the cons, uh, I think I still think we'd be far better off with term limits on members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you're never going to get that if you're waiting for uh, the members of Congress to term limit themselves. They're just not going to do it. Right. I looked at the uh, I looked on the internet about a little over a year ago, I guess it was. And there were, I think at that time, nine term limit bills in the House and one in the Senate. Uh, Ted Cruz had the Senate bill. But almost every one of them had some what I call weasel language in them that said um, current service or prior service does not count against any 
new uh, term limit provision. So in other words, if you had someone like uh, a senator who'd already been there for 30 years, that 30 years wouldn't count if they put in a new term limit that said uh, you only get two terms or 12 years. Wow. So they'd get to stay in, you know, 42 years. And mm -hmm. that's not the way you and I would craft a term limit bill. And it's no. not the way the general public would craft a term limit bill. We would say, if you've already exceeded your <clears throat> allotted term, uh, you cannot run for re-election. You can serve out the remainder of your term, but you cannot run for re-election. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fairer way to look at it in the way it, someone who's looking out for the best interest of the nation instead of their own political careers, that's the way we would look at it. Yeah, I, but you're I, never going to get that from. Uh, you're never going to get that from uh, uh, if you wait for Congress to do it voluntarily. They're not going to vote themselves out of the job. Definitely. Um, where can people find out more about the Convention of States that you were talking about? There is a, a website called www.conventionofstatesallrundogether.org. Mm -hmm. Or, or is it dot com? I can't remember now. It's one of the. We'll have two. that in the show notes. I'll, I'll look that up. Okay. <clears throat> gotcha. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know about the Convention of States, and we'll we'll put that in the show notes, and we'll put uh, your other websites on there as well. Um, okay. Are you still doing um, a radio show? I, I saw that you were doing that at one time. No, I stopped doing the one in Sandy Springs uh, some time ago. I, I did that for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, no, I have not been doing that uh, in the last couple of years. Have you thought about doing a podcast where you um, talk about the fair tax and interview people? And, and uh, you know, I think you'd do great doing that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, no, I actually haven't. Um, I, I do know a gentleman. In fact, you know, may know Shane Hazel uh, does a podcast. And uh, he ran for Congress against uh, Rob Woodall. And uh, he's a former Marine recon guy, um, and he's a uh, strong constitutionalist also. Um, and uh, he does a podcast, and I've talked to him about going on his podcast, but I have not done that yet. Okay, well, great. Well, good deal. I think it's important, especially around April 15th, we're all talking and thinking about taxes and that there is an alternative to the fair tax or to the current income tax and the fair tax is really the only option out there for folks if they're interested in finding out about um, a, an alternative that can improve the life of individuals as well as the entire economy is there anything right. you'd like to leave our audience with still um, to close out no i appreciate your time brad i think we've covered a lot of territory here and uh, brought folks up i know a lot of people uh, have uh, supported the fair tax over the years and uh, got a little bit discouraged because it wasn't moving as fast as we all hoped that it would. Um, but um, we haven't, some of us haven't given up at least, and uh, we still think it's more needed than ever. Well, I'm glad you guys are out there fighting the good fight because, you know, nothing is perfect in life and everything is a compromise. But at least what the fair tax does, what I see the biggest, um, plus about it is it puts the power back in the hands of the individual. Your income, your labor, your your property is your own until you choose to spend that. And up to the poverty line, then you're not going to be paying any federal sales tax. So 
So That's I right. think on both sides of the aisle, there can definitely be a meeting of the minds on this. I'm a libertarian, so I would like to see a small government as small as possible. But until we can shrink Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, you know, we have to fund those things. And what is the best way to do that? Right. So I think the fair tax, you know, is a solution, is a pretty pretty good solution out there. So I appreciate your work, Phil, and I appreciate okay. everybody listening today. And I'll have all the information about uh, the fair tax, the convention of states, in the show notes. And if you want to contact the show, it's brad at chronicallyhuman.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.